In these weeks, our series has been uh, a heart of focus on what the Lord wants us to do in terms of renewed generosity specifically, but really the broader context of what does it mean to be a faithful disciple and to steward our lives for the Lord and for his kingdom and to be used by him. And along those lines today, we're thinking about a heart of consistency, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 1 in the Old Testament. And we're going to look at the entirety of this chapter as we read through it together in just a moment. We all know, uh, by virtue of the world that we live in, that we are in some difficult times. Spiritually, in terms of religion, morality, ethics, socially, in terms of uh, the economics that are up and down, and the culture that seems to just be all over the place in so many different areas. Politically, there are ideologies and division uh, seems to be everywhere that we look. But the reality is we are facing nothing new. In fact, since the fall of man, this has been the situation. And this will remain the situation until Jesus returns and makes all things new. So one of the reasons that we long for and we anticipate the return of Jesus is because we know that he's going to set things right and that we have the privilege of being a part of that when our faith is in him. Our focus today is on a man named Daniel who lived some 2,500 years ago, but I think even though he lived so long ago, there's a lot that we can learn in this age from his life. From what we know about Daniel, he was born in Judah, most likely in Jerusalem, and he was brought up around the people of God in a time when things were beginning to change. You remember the United Kingdom had been organized under the kings of Saul and then David and then Solomon. And for the most part, uh, they stayed on track in the midst of rebellion and challenges that came from the people. But even so, they ultimately found their demise, as we'll find out here in just a moment. And then as they divided into the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom was saturated with idolatry and wickedness. And for the most part, their hearts and minds were far away from the Lord. And while there were times of renewal and even revival, what we would call revival from a biblical perspective in the southern kingdom of Judah, it still wasn't lasting because the people's hearts weren't where they needed to be with the Lord. God's judgment first came to the northern kingdom in the form of defeat at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC when they were overrun. And then defeat would come because of God's judgment to the southern kingdom at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 BC, which is the context of what we're considering today. Now, a lot of times, even as Bible students, when we hear that God's people were taken into exile into Babylon, we envision in our mind's eye that there was this large exodus of the people, that they just came and got them all at once and they deported them to Babylon. But the reality is that's not exactly what took place. There were three primary deportations to Babylon, one in 605 BC, another in 597 BC, and then finally when Jerusalem fell in 586 BC to make up the collective deportation of the people who were taken to a foreign land. The book of Daniel occurs right in the midst of all of that, and it provides what amounts to a 70-year window into the life of Daniel. It spans probably from Daniel's teenage years along about the age of 16 
all the way up until he would have been in his ninth decade of life. Daniel's work was really three-part. The first part was that he would bring hope to God's people, that they could stand firm, that they could trust in the Lord, that he still had a plan for them. They could look to him for their strength. It was also a word of judgment upon the people who were their captives in the sense that just his being there and their being there in the presence of these people, they were representing the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he has a plan for the ages. But then Daniel tells us about what's to come even in the future. There's so many things that Daniel gives us insight into that are woven into the book of Revelation as we anticipate the things that are to come in Jesus. And God gave him that type of insight into what's coming in the future. And here was this man named Daniel who was nothing more than an older boy at this point, a a teenager who was growing in stature, and he finds himself all of a sudden taken into exile. Now, this is important because Daniel and his colleagues represent the very best of the best. They were people who were without physical defect. Uh, They were good-looking in the way that they were constructed. They were suitable to be taught. The Bible's going to tell us that they were knowledgeable and perceptive. They were capable of serving in the king's palace. And I want you just for a moment to put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you're living in relative peace. Yeah, there's been troubles. There have been some opposition factors that have come against you, but you're living in your homeland. You're with your friends. You're with your family. And then all of a sudden, an army overruns the whole thing and puts you in total subjection to the point that you're taken to a foreign country, separated from your family, from your friends, and everything that you've known. I believe Daniel could have responded with anger or bitterness about his situation. He could have looked backwards rather than looking forward. He he could have bemoaned the moment and the circumstance that he found himself in. But instead, his life provides for us a model of a life of consistency. And what I want you to see as we read through this passage together is not so much dare to be a Daniel, which is often the title of a sermon like this, But more importantly, be sure that your faith is in God and that your obedience and your commitment is to him so that you can be used in the way that he sees fit and so that your life has a purpose. So what I want you to see here is that the hero in the story is ultimately God. It's ultimately not about us. We're not elevating ourselves. Yes, we are imitating what we see just as we're to imitate Paul, as he said to the church to imitate him as he imitated Christ, but Paul's focus was on Christ. Daniel's focus is on God. We begin reading in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, and here's what the Word of God says. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. 
They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now verse 17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The historical moment that we find ourselves in in this passage is in the third year of King Jehoiakim of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar comes and he overruns the people. He overruns the city. He lays siege to Jerusalem and totally dominates them. Jehoiakim was the 17th king of Judah. He was the eldest son of Josiah. The Lord gave Judah's king into the hands of the enemy. Not only did he give the king and the people into the hands of the enemy, but he also took some of the vessels of the house of God, took them to the land of Shinar, put them into the house of his false god, and here they were in a predicament. You say, well, was this surprising to the people? Our answer would be it should not have been surprising to the people. And the reason that it should not have been surprising to the people was that a hundred years before, a century before, Isaiah the prophet told King Hezekiah in Isaiah 39, hear the word of the Lord of armies, verse 5, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. What about the warning that came even later than that to the prophet Jeremiah just uh, several decades before? In Jeremiah 32, it says, Look, I am the Lord, the God over every creature. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the Chaldeans, to Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar, and he will capture it. Now listen to the reason why this would take place. 
Jeremiah 32 and verse 33. They have turned their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them time and time again, they do not listen and receive discipline. God is amazingly patient. He gave warning through his prophets. He said, if you don't turn away from your idolatry, if you do not repent, if you not, do not turn your face toward me, there will be consequences, and the consequences will be judgment. And what the judgment will be comprised of is that you will be taken into captivity and you'll be placed in exile because you've been disobedient to me. And this is exactly what took place that we read about in the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar was expanding his rule and his reign as an earthly king will often do. He needed people of position, in positions of power who were skilled, who were capable. So where does he go? He goes to the best of the best. He goes to what amounts to the royal family and to the people who are the cream of the crop. He identifies the most skillful of the Hebrew captives and he prepares them for positions of responsibility. Now, he uses specifically this man named Ashpenaz, who was placed in charge of this training in order to bring into the king's service these capable people. And the four that are referenced specifically here are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what we're going to learn in these next few moments are some elements of consistency that I think we can emulate in our lives. Some things that we can look at and say, well, that's what a faithful servant of God looks like. That's what a consistent life looks like. This is what we should be doing as the people of God in the midst of our own difficult circumstances. And the first element of consistency that we need to have in our hearts is that we need consistency in our commitment. We need consistency in our commitment. We'll follow here in about the first seven verses. Uh, I think in many ways we live in modern day Babylon. I don't think anybody would argue with that fact. Babylon indulged in every form of wickedness and sin that was possible. According to the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon will play an important role in the end times, which we seem to be rapidly approaching. And like the first Babylon, the one referred to in Revelation is going to come to a violent and to an abrupt end because God always wins. But in the historical context, Babylon was started as a city-state in Mesopotamia. It was founded uh, on the river Euphrates, about 50 miles from the modern city of Baghdad, of which some of you have visited at the courtesy of Uncle Sam. So you're familiar more than some of the rest of us with this particular area of the world. And it was a place that started as a city-state, but it expanded under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar until it was a dominant empire. Nebuchadnezzar was noteworthy for a massive building program in Babylon. It's said that the city was surrounded by an 11-mile-long wall, and the inner wall had space for two chariots to be abreast and to be able to travel all the way around that wall. This was a massive city. The city had eight gates. It also included Nebuchadnezzar's summer palace. And uh, it was a place where they would come for false worship. It was a place where they would honor their ruler. And it was also a place where the ornateness and the opulence of the day reigned supreme under 
this ruler that was over them. It's also the location of the hanging gardens of Babylon, which are described by classical authors as one of the ancient wonders of the world. Babylon contained many temples to false gods. It's said that there were some 100 deities that were recognized in the worship of Babylon, even though only about 20 of them were actually highlighted and brought to the forefront. So in Judeo-Christian thought, Babylon, the metropolis, like the Tower of Babylon, became symbolic of decadence and of God's judgment. It was based uh, on a highly polytheistic system of belief. And I think the people of God, when they ended up in exile there, should have kind of intuitively understood that they were indeed pilgrims. Think about their history, after all. From the time that they had gone from Canaan down to Egypt because of the famine, and then when God delivered them from slavery, when he brought the plagues and they crossed the Red Sea and and they were brought into the wilderness, they wandered because of their disobedience. Then the generation that was under the age of 20 finally entered into the promised land, but even so they were not settled because of the way that they lived their lives and the way their focus was. They had been a wandering people in temporary places. And you know from the New Testament that ultimately we are wandering people in temporary places. And here's where I think our thinking sometimes goes wrong as it relates to our earthly surroundings. We sometimes fall into the trap of acting as though we are seeking the promised land on earth in the form of an earthly country And we become incredibly short-sighted, not recognizing that even the best of an earthly situation is deeply impacted by the philosophy of Babylon. And we would do well to recognize that we are now in a temporary state, but we are longing for eternity in the presence of God. I think about the great hall of fame of faith as it's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, example after example is given to us of people who under great duress and hardship and even at the cost of their lives were faithful to God. And the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 12, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now listen to this. This is good. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. As believers, we are seeking a heavenly city, not an earthly utopia in this age. An earthly utopia in this age is a pipe dream. A heavenly city in the age to come is a promise. And we should anchor our lives down not in a pipe dream. We should anchor our lives down in a promise. And that promise gives us something that we long for because Jesus has promised it to us. And we know that we're temporary in this world, but we long for a heavenly city so that God would not be ashamed to be called our God. 
Now, I believe in democracy and freedom by principle. I'm about as American and pro-democracy and pro-capitalist as they come. But I also realize God's kingdom is neither limited nor advanced on the basis of a human government. Government is ordained by God to keep order, and certain forms of government can certainly help or hurt Christians and the church. But God's plan for the ages that is according to his sovereignty and carried out by his providence is not thwarted by or dependent on any human form of government. And we see this illustrated right here in Daniel. Now what this says to us is that when we are afforded the resources that we are in a in a society like ours, and we're given the freedoms that we have in a society like ours, that we must make the most of those because to whom much is given, much is required. We have a sacred responsibility. We should be using and leveraging all that we have in this nation so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go all the way to the ends of the earth. We cannot sit back and be comfortable in and of what we have and not realize that the reason God has given us these things is so that we can make his glory known all the way to the ends of the earth. But we realize even so, God can work in the midst of difficulty. It's said that there are somewhere around 7.6 billion people now inhabiting the planet. And well over half of that population lives in a country that is either under communism, some form of socialism, or Islamic law. And yet in some of the darkest and most difficult places, it's where the church of the living Christ is flourishing the most. And several of you have referenced to me this week even the uh, articles and the news reports of the growth of the church in Iran that's been at the forefront of media even this week, reminding us that God's work is not dependent on those things. Yes, we use what's been entrusted to us But God can work even in the midst of difficulty. You say, well, how could that be? How could God work in a place like Iran? How could God work in a place like China? How could God work in a place where religion is suppressed and where people are persecuted? I've got the answer for you, and it's the answer that comes from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 16, in verse 18, Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the answer. This is the church of Jesus Christ. The crucified, buried, risen, and soon to return Lord. And he's carrying out the plan of all of eternity. Now the name Daniel means God is my judge. Daniel found himself in a circumstance where because of the authority of the people he was under, his name along with his colleagues, was changed. What do you do when you're in a place where they even change your name? The commitment was challenged in the face of a name change. But make sure you understand what could not be changed because of Daniel's commitment was his identity as a follower of God. They could refer to him as whatever they wanted to refer to him as. They could give him whatever name they wanted to give him. But his faith was in the living God. And even in the midst of that 
circumstance of exile, he was determined that he was going to maintain a consistency in his commitment. And the commitment of Daniel was also challenged by a secular education and indoctrination. They were taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. There's nothing inherently wrong with knowing the language and the literature of a secular culture. But the goal was beyond that. It was to train their minds not to think as God's people, but to think as Babylonians. So they were in what amounted to a three-year boot camp in order to shape them as they needed to be shaped to lead as they needed to lead. What was at stake was their worldview. Daniel Noble defined a worldview in this way. A worldview is the framework from which we view reality and make sense of life in the world. It is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching approach to understanding God, the world, and man's relations to God and the world. Now, evidently, Daniel was able to navigate a name change. He couldn't do anything about it. He was able to navigate the education. He didn't see that as a major problem because he could get through that. But as we're going to see in just a moment, he drew the line in what he evidently viewed as overt sin. Faced with the choice of commitment or compromise, Daniel chose commitment. The second element of consistency that we need is we need consistency in our holiness. We need consistency in our holiness. And we dig a little deeper here in verses 8 through 16. Kind of the pretext of this is back in verse 5, where the verse indicates that the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from wine that he drank. And up until this point, Daniel and his friends had shown no outward resistance, at least to the assimilation into the Babylonian culture. They didn't skip their Babylonian literature classes as it was. They, they answered to their Babylonian names. But there's something striking that happens in this moment. What caused Daniel to draw the line? Why did he say no compromise, essentially, in the request that was made of him? How could he do that? Well, according to verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. So he asked permission from the chief official who had been favorable toward him up until this point. Hey, help us out here a little bit. We, we don't want to partake of this. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. We don't want to partake of this. And the chief official says, now, wait a minute, boys. That's not going to look good if y'all come back looking bad before the king. That's going to be on me. Now, I'm not willing to take that responsibility. So Daniel wisely works his way down the line a little bit. says, hey, what if you just did a 10-day test and let us eat the vegetables and drink the water and let's see what happens at the end of it. See, Daniel knew that God was going to see them through. And at the end of that 10 days, they were healthier and looked better than any of them that had been eating what had been brought from the king's table. Here's what I think the likely issue was. I think the likely issue was eating the meat would have been against Mosaic law because it was not properly prepared. And there was also food that was offered to idols. So what we have here is a double whammy. This is like a double no-no here. They shouldn't be partaking of this meat. That's why Daniel says he's not going to do it. And I think the wine represented the riches of excess. It was also Babylonian custom to throw part of the vines and a little bit of the wine to the ground and it represented 
an initiatory offering uh, to the gods. So to partake in either of these in Daniel's mind, and the reason they drew the line, is that it would have been the equivalent of idolatry. And the reason Daniel didn't want to get involved in idolatry is because he had a desire to please God in all that he did, and that has to be our desire as well. One commentator said that these men, these young men must have stood out like an oasis in the midst of a desert because of the commitment that they made and because of even the appearance of how they came across physically. Like Moses, Daniel chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now I'm telling you nothing when I tell you that sinful temptations are all around us. In fact, every form of sin that is possible is readily available to us in this world that we live in. So how can we prepare ourselves to maintain a life of holiness? Well, we've got to draw the line. We have to come to the place in our lives where we purpose in our hearts that we're not going to defile ourselves in this world, that we draw the line in the sand and we say we're going to honor God regardless of what price that might bring from our lives. And I think there are also some underlying principles at play that prepared Daniel and his colleagues for the very moment that they found themselves in. And let me tell you what I think those are. I think his life had been influenced by the Word of God. And the Word of God cultivates holiness. Now we draw a parallel because Daniel was born in 622 B.C., along about there, the year that King Josiah opened the doors of the temple of the Lord that had been closed by his wicked grandfather, Manasseh. Josiah was still a young man himself at that time, but you remember what happened when they opened the doors of that temple and they went in? They rediscovered the Word of God. And they didn't just rediscover the Word of God as a relic. The priests began to teach the people the Word of God, and because the people began to be taught the Word of God, there was a revival that began among them. And undoubtedly, Daniel was influenced by the context that he found himself in growing up. And the Word of God had laid a foundation in his life so that he knew when the meat that had been brought before idols was brought before him, he could not partake of it. He knew that when he was tempted and drawn away toward idolatry, that there was nothing he wanted to do to dishonor God, so he said no. And I think the influence of godly parents had an effect on his life as well. Now, we don't know much about his parents, but what we do know is that they named him Daniel, which means God is my judge. Apparently, that was significant. R. Kent Hughes wrote this. He said, this gives us a small glimpse as to the high view of God that they had, which they passed on to their son, Daniel. It was as if his parents said, you will not always have to give an account to us. But one day you will give an account to our great God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's watching over you always. He knows what you think. He sees all you do. He alone is your judge. So watch your life closely. Holiness in the midst of Babylon requires purpose in your heart, inner resolve and determination to do what is right. 
Babylon today is represented by the world system of ungodliness and idolatry, rebellion and sinfulness. And listen, I know there is tremendous pressure on all of us to succumb to the thinking of Babylon. When you go into the workplace and you go into your neighborhood and we drive through our communities, we are tempted to adopt the thinking of a world that is temporary. And the great temptation is that Babylon promises pleasure, which is the reason why it's so appealing to begin with. It promises the very best feelings in life, but it ends up leaving us in a place of despair. It ends up leaving us in a place of judgment rather than being in the place of blessing, in the place of happiness. And we want to be where God wants us to be. We have to push back against that and present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God because that's our true worship. And you understand, people don't drift toward godliness. Apart from a grace-driven effort, people don't drift toward prayer and obedience to the Scripture and delight in the Lord. We instead drift toward the things that draw us away from God. D.A. Carson wrote in a piece called Reflections, we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. You have to purpose in your heart like Daniel to live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation without defiling yourself. That purpose in heart will result in a plan to do so and it will require persistence in carrying it out. When faced with the choice of holiness or compromise, Daniel chose holiness. And there's a third element of consistency that we need. We need consistency in our faith. We find this in these last verses, verse 17 through verse 21. I think what we find here is that God rewarded the faith of Daniel and these other young men. You know, you understand the Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 11, that without faith is impossible to please God, but God rewards those who draw near to him and believe that he is. When we seek him, he will reward us. And I think that's what's happening here. He gave them knowledge. Knowledge is mental agility, the ability to apply logic. God gave them skill in literature and in wisdom. They were well-read and not just well-read. They could understand what they read. Daniel was also given the ability of understanding supernaturally visions and dreams. This was a significant ability that God gave them as he intervened so that they might have influence in the situation they found themselves in. And it goes beyond just Daniel. Sometimes I think we think about these Old Testament stories particular, particularly like they're just snapshots in history. 
And, and the story, it stands alone. And, and we tell the story and we teach the children and we want them to understand the facts of the story, but it's as though it's, it's isolated. Dare to be a Daniel. You want to be like Daniel and that's like the end of the story. And that's, that's not the end of the story because the reality is Daniel is directly referenced five times in the New Testament and also by Jesus. And it's alluded to 130 times in the New Testament, much of it because of Daniel's faith in God and his obedience to his will. And furthermore, Daniel's obedience and his faithfulness to God in the midst of Babylon is in a sense a a type of Christ because it points us to what Jesus has done, what Jesus was willing to do in leaving the glory of heaven and entering into this messed up world that is broken, that is lost, that is separated, that is dead in their trespasses and their sin. And Jesus was willing to leave the glory of heaven and enter into this Babylon of the earth and yet remain faithful, even to the point of giving his own life so that we could be reconciled to God and being raised from the dead and even now being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we find Daniel at the end of his three years, uh, which, by the way, is also the approximate time of Jesus' public ministry on the earth, without driving the analogy too far. The king examined Daniel and his three companions and found that nobody equaled them. They underwent some sort of examination. They were ten times better than the rest of the crowd that was trying to practice divination and, and tell the king what he needed to do. And here was Daniel, determined to obey God, realizing that obedience brings blessing. Mark it down. Obedience brings blessing. And I think it's unlikely that they would have been ready and willing to lay down their lives in the fiery furnace had they not gone through the test, had they not had faith that God would uphold them. So this says to us that we must keep God central to our lives. Later, we learn in Daniel that part of his routine was to kneel towards Jerusalem from his window, pray to God three times a day. That's what uh, bought him his stay in the lion's den. Why? Why would he do that? Because everything revolved around God in Daniel's life. He was not going to compromise no matter what the edict was or what he was told to do. He was going to stay faithful. He had a consistency of faith that was demonstrated in some of the most difficult circumstances of life. And I think this says to us also, we must use our influence for good. God's not placed you in the vocation that you're in, whatever that is, by accident. He's given you a sacred trust, a responsibility, an opportunity to influence others for good. You ought to ask yourself the question, how can I leverage my current position in life, whatever that is, and however my life intersects with other people and influences other people, how can I best steward and leverage that responsibility and that opportunity to be an influence? You see, we've got to resist as Christians this mentality that we're going to withdraw and we're going to go to a compound somewhere. And even if we're not withdrawing physically and going to a compound somewhere, uh, effectively, that's what a lot of us do because we get in the Christian ghetto to the point that we're not influencing anybody. 
And it becomes an us for and no more mentality. And God has called us to be in the world, but not of the world. And you can be in the world, but not of the world. You can have influence in the midst of the darkness because you are light. And that's the influence God's calling you to use and to steward. And we also realize that life often doesn't turn out how we thought it would. If you're ever about nine years old, you already knew that. But even when life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would, we've got to be willing to pivot, to adjust, and to make the most of our circumstances. And we've got to stand strong even in the difficulty. Friends, following Jesus is countercultural. It's countercultural. You're going to be marginalized. People are going to think that what you're saying is foolish. They're not going to understand. And we've got to have the courage to stand up for what is right. All the while reminding ourselves that we're pilgrims. We're temporary residents on our way to a heavenly city. And I close with these verses from 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. In just a moment, Pastor Eric is going to come and sing a closing song with us. We'll not sing long, but we invite you to come. Uh, Maybe there's something that you're dealing with right now, and as a Christian, you want to be a better influence. You need courage. You need boldness. You need wisdom. Maybe you want to come up and just pray and ask the Lord to give it to you to help you to leverage that position of influence that you have for him. But maybe today you'd have to say, if honest, you're walking currently on the broad road of Babylon and Jesus is calling you to the narrow way of life, life eternal. And you need to repent and believe to embrace Jesus and come and know him as your Savior and Lord. We're extending the invitation to you to do that, to take that first step of faith of becoming a disciple of Jesus. Whatever your needs are in just a moment, you come. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit who gives us insight into all these things so that we can not only look at a story like this in its historical context, but we can overlay it in modern times and see what the direct application is, God, because your word is always relevant. Your word is always helpful to us to help us understand the age that we live in and also to look forward to the age to come. So Jesus, we honor you today as the one who left the glory of heaven and came into this, the mess of this earth so that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And I pray that our lives would honor you in every regard and that you would help my brothers and sisters in Christ to be people of significant influence in whatever facet or sphere of life you've placed them in to use this moment to to be a good guardian of this time that you've entrusted to them to bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. And I pray for any now under the sound of my voice who don't know Christ 
that today would be the day that they would come to faith in him. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.